Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to HPI. I am Dr. Cody Jackson, and I'll be your navigator through today's journey of history of present interview. WOMA's series at the crossroads where the interests of the people meet the people of interest. WOMA is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. WOMA podcasts are a benefit for WOMA members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians and allies. The WOMA Education Committee members involved in planning this presentation and Dr. Sandrock have no relevant financial relationships to disclose and have no conflicts of interest. Back to COVID, what recommendations do you have for returning to work after a COVID infection? When is it safe? Uh, what about physical activity or hard labor after hospitalization or being on a ventilator? Yeah, those are great. Those are good questions. So, you know, for patients, I think, and, you know, whether they're uh, obviously employees or patients who've had um, non-severe COVID, so we're, we'll define it as you're, you know, you're generally at home, you're asymptomatic, but never really needed to seek healthcare. You know, usually that return to work on average is you're symptom-free for, you know, at least 24 hours and you're t- a minimum of 10 days out from last symptom onset. So, you know, if you get sick and you have a fever, sore throat, body aches, those last five days, then you're going to wait another five days. So you have it's a total of 10 days from symptom onset. And usually that's the time frame where you can return back to work. That's pretty relatively pretty straightforward. Now, when in those patients who are not critically ill or severely ill, when do they start exercising? That's always been a little bit of an open debate because you obviously there's some, some data from particularly division one athletes that had minimally symptomatic COVID where they had actual residual cardiac and pulmonary dysfunction. And there was a discussion around a lot of the, you know, even sports medicine world and rehab world that, you know, hey, if you feel good, get back to work. Do you actually have to do this gradually? And that's, we don't have a ton of data on it, but I think for many of my patients, I'll tell them you can start heavy lifting, heavy work, getting back to work, but do it on a more gradual basis where you're testing yourself and making sure, hey, you're not having regular chest pain or you're not getting short of breath to the point where we need to check your oxygen saturations. You know, if you were running five miles before you had COVID, you had COVID, you sort of took it easy. And then, you know, day 10, you want to run five miles again. I'd probably tell you, hey, go running. That sounds great. Just to have a light run, take it easy, see how you feel. And over the next week or two, build it back up. And if everything feels normal, great. So that's kind of the advice we've been giving people is just give yourself a few week lead time to build up to where you were. Um, and pace yourself. Now for the critically ill, that's always a great challenge because they obviously have multiple deficits that are related to their ICU stay in addition to their COVID. So, um, and it's hard to know when they're free to be off isolation. So there's sort of two schools of thought. The main one is 21 days after, you know, if you're not immunosuppressed, 21 days after your symptom onset, isolation can be lifted. But you can imagine if you come in on day 10 and day 10, you're intubated, right? you're intubated and sedated in our ICU on day 21, we can't tell if your symptoms have gotten better or not. And one of the keys of lifting that isolation is that your symptoms have largely resolved and improved. But if you're, again, you have fibrotic lung disease and ARDS in our ICU, I can't tell you whether you've improved or not. So it almost doesn't matter in those cases, but generally after 21 days, we kind of like to lift isolation. Some people will do repeat testing. And if the test is positive, they'll look at the cycle time. If the cycle time is anything under about 35, they'll say, hey, they still need isolation. And if it's above 35, they don't. Um, And that application applies to some nursing homes and rehab facilities as well, that they might be 21 days out, but they still want a negative test. If the test turns out being 
positive, they want to know what the cycle time is. And if the cycle time is high, they can subsequently um, go, you know, lift isolation. So there's a lot of different, actually high or low, whatever, a high number, but, you know, multiple cycles need to be run. So usually we say it's high, but um, that's, it's always one of those debates, um, whether it's a high or low cycle time. Anyway, um, I think that's, that's kind of the big recommendations. But for our, our patients who really have been in the ICU for a while, we're, um, I think that idea of comprehensive physical and occupational therapy to really assess where they are and then to gradually break them in is important. And one thing we've seen is that cognitive side as well, because when you're in the ICU and you're, you're ill, your, your cognitive deficits are long-term. And I'm, what I mean by long-term is six, 12 months out, we're still seeing deficits in criti critically ill patients. So it's really bringing back that ability to work uh, both mentally and physically, um, and to be active both mentally and physically. It, we really recommend it that it's slow. Now, we haven't defined what slow is, and I think that's variable by physician, but yeah, you just don't go back to what you were doing without question. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so it, it sounds like start slow and, and take it from there. And obviously, if someone with a milder infection is going to start at a higher level of functioning, both physically and mentally, than if they were hospitalized or on a ventilator, once they get well enough to be discharged, you know, they're just going to take a longer time to recoup the deficits that they had lost. Yeah. It's always hard to know the level of activity. The one thing that's clear is if you have a post ICU syndrome, which can be COVID or non COVID related, everyone complains of deficits at six and 12 months. So um, I think what hasn't caught up is we know there's deficits. We know if we do a lot of acute rehab, meaning literally physical therapy, walking you while you're on the ventilator, we can reduce and reducing sedation. We can reduce the likelihood of you having deficits at six and 12 months. But, you know, once you're off the ventilator and you're starting to, you know, function in the world and have your rehab, what kind of rehab is best for those kinds of patients, I think is still, there's a lot of data that we need to figure out and what kind of, you know, rehab program is going to work for your, what types of patients. So one thing that we really never looked at was a lot of cognitive rehab, right? So one of the right. big complaints people have are, is forgetfulness and depression and mood swings. And, you know, if you spend your time doing the stuff we tell people who've had a stroke to do, you know, Sudoku puzzles, crossword puzzles, mind exercises, reading, is that going to help or not? You know, it's a great question. I tell my patients to do it because it can't hurt, but right. you know, I, I don't, I don't know if that's really the best form. I, you know, we like to think so, but I'm not sure. Would you mind just touching a little bit more on the physical rehabilitation while in the ICU? It's a lot of data has come out over the last probably 15, 20 years. So uh, Timothy Gerard, when he was at Vanderbilt, was um, sort of led a lot of this literature. And um, Vanderbilt was probably one of the big leaders, but there's been a few other facilities, Michigan and Hopkins and a few others. But um, the idea was, you know, essentially, hey, you're in the ICU, you're critically ill, you're on a ventilator, you have lines and tubes, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, you're not moving. The best thing we can do for you is to, you know, give you a ton of uh, sedatives, whether they're benzos or, you know, narcotics or propofol, knock you out. And who the hell wants to forget or remember being in the ICU? We, you should forget it. Uh, because obviously, right. if you remember some of it, it's going to be traumatic for you and your likelihood of PTSD is higher. And what the research really showed was that it's the exact opposite, that the more we sedate you and the more we knock you out of it, you actually have a higher rate of PTSD and you have a higher rate of mental health and mental illnesses. And if we wake you up and you participate in your care, even if you have lines and tubes and you're intubated, but if you can interact, you know, communicate, whether it's with a whiteboard and, um, you know, be a part of your care. Um, your mental health and physical and, you know, cognitive outcomes are better. So that we sort of learned. So as a result of that, it's reducing sedation, obviously this daily interruption of sedation every day, waking patients up if they can tolerate half, 
the sedation or no sedation. We certainly move in those directions and just give it, And if we do have to give it to them, giving it to them as needed, you know, PRN just pushes of um, sedatives is really the way to go rather than a continuous infusion. Um, and within that is to actually look at obviously physical and occupational therapy. So that might mean, you know, if you're bed bound and you're obviously in a coma um, with ARDS and you're even prone, it might be just passive range of motion. So the nurses or the PTs come and move your legs and arms in a passive range of motion so long as you're able to be hemodynamically stable. But it also might mean sitting up at the edge of the bed while you have them in the tracheal tube in. We've had patients walk with a walker, just a couple steps, but the idea that they're sitting up, standing and walking, they retain and keep as much of that muscle strength as they actually can have. Um, and then they participate in their care. So the cognitive and uh, mental health aspects improve down the line. So, and, you know, again, it's occupational therapy. Like literally we have them combing their hair or shaving their face. They still have the endotracheal tube and nasotracheal tube in, but they're doing those things they've otherwise done. And that's, that's kind of the focus. Well, and doing those care aspects for oneself also involves a lot of strength. I mean, to comb your hair, you have to lift your arm above your head, yeah. you know, and so it's really training those muscles and preventing the further decline of that. And I think it's a good point for our listeners to understand that this is a way that they can advocate for their patient who's in the hospital when maybe the insurance adjuster doesn't understand why someone in a coma is going under or needs physical therapy performed and a way to advocate them for a better outcome at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, physical and, and occupational therapy should be performed on anyone. And even if you're so unstable, we have you in a coma and we're not waking you up, you know, you still can have those passive range of motions unless moving your leg causes your blood pressure to drop or your oxygen level to drop. Sure. In those cases, when you're that ill, we're not going to do it. If you have family members in the hospital and in the ICU, they should be getting rehabilitation daily. That's the standard. And that's really improved short and long-term outcomes dramatically. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We'll move on to uh, the next questions, which will be rapid fire. This is our rapid fire portion, and we'll just give you a minute to answer all of them. So just say the first thing that pops into your head, okay? What's one thing you spend way too much on but don't regret? Cooking. When is your most productive part of the day? Oh, that's definitely the morning, particularly before the kids get up. What's your favorite type of music? Oh boy, that's always a bit hard because I listen to so many different things. But I would say right now it's been a lot of reggae, even though it's cold weather season. I've still been listening to a lot of reggae lately. It's all about the imagery, right? Putting yourself in the warm spot. <laughs> yeah, just keeping me <laughs> relaxed, actually. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite uh, sport to play or watch? Oh, hockey. I don't think that's ever going to change for the remainder of my life. <laughs> Christian, it's been great fun getting to know you. To set us up for the next episode, do you ever play the lottery? Uh, I do not, no. You do no, not. I, I've, just, if, I've never been a gambler with money. With my life, yes. Money, no. <laughs> that, that's good. If someone gave you a million dollars, what would you do with it? After probably making sure my kids had a little bit of an education, and actually I might not even do that because I actually have a good salary and a good income, um, I'd probably donate it. I don't know where I would donate it to. I'd have to think about that, but I would probably donate it, mostly within Sacramento where I live. I try to keep it local. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Christian. It's been a pleasure getting to know your HPI. Until next time, everyone, please stay safe, stay healthy.